Paddock Pass Podcast Lockdown Edition. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass Podcast. Now with the COVID-19 pandemic overtaking world events and putting racing on the back burner for present and the foreseeable future, we at the Paddock Pass Podcast are going to take a slightly different approach to our shows in the upcoming weeks. And this is going to be the first in a series that we'll do of epic seasons that we have witnessed in MotoGP or in World Superbike in our lifetimes and even sometimes before then. This show in particular is going to be about the epic roller coaster ride of a year that was 2006 in MotoGP, the year that crowned Nicky Hayden as a MotoGP world champion and saw a whole host of vintage races. My name is Neil Morrison, MotoGP journalist, and I'm delighted to say that I am joined by two esteemed uh, colleagues. Uh, one, David Emmett of Motomatters.com, based in the Netherlands. How are you, David? Uh, not so bad. The sun is shining, um, uh, which is a bit of a pain in the ass, but there's uh, not a lot you can do about it. And also, the danger from Dundalk, based just outside Dublin, Mr. Steve English. How are you, sir? Not so bad, Neil. Just straight out of band, the country. But luckily, the weather's pretty good here. Yeah, I think the weather is keeping us all pretty much insane while we're locked inside our, uh, our houses and our gardens. Uh, in these uh, tough and troubling and trying weeks. But we've got some solace uh, with a little nostalgia trip back into the past. And, uh, well, as we're about to find out, 2006 wasn't just a great year of racing, but it also held particular significance to my two guests today on the show. But before we get to that, Steve, you put out a tweet on Twitter on Friday evening asking some of our listeners what they thought uh, their favorite season was in history, and we had quite an overwhelming response that said that 2006 was uh, the favourite of many. Matt Roberts, he of uh, Eurosport fame, said, uh, well, Stoner Melandre at Istanbul, Elias Rossi, KRJR at Estoril, a mad race at Brno, Hayden wins at Laguna, Pedroza versus Hayden at Estoril, Bayless versus the World at Valencia, and Hayden world champion. Take your pick, 2006 was the year. I don't think we can really put it much better than that, but also similar responses from Porcupine, and also uh, Zoe Francis Burns, who are giving us uh, their opinions that 2006 was pretty much uh, one of the best years that we've ever seen. Now, David, this was also a season that was quite significant in the development of your website, motomatters.com. That's right. It was when I first started. Um, I started a blog in 2005, wrote one entry saying, uh, I hope to uh, collect my thoughts here, and then didn't have any thoughts for a year. Uh, so uh, then before the 2006 started, start, season started, I thought I'd write a preview, um, season preview, see if people like it. And people appeared to uh, uh, like it. So I just started, you know, writing, basically started writing race reports of the uh, 2006 season, and it turned out to be um, uh, the right time to be writing about MotoGP. Yeah, you probably couldn't have picked a better year if you had tried, David. And Steve, you had uh, spent much of your, your childhood and adolescence watching Grand Prix racing on television, but this was the first year that you actually saw MotoGP in the flesh. Yeah, exactly. I'd always gone to the national road races here in Ireland and up to the Northwest and different events, but uh, never actually gone to a MotoGP race or a World Superbike race at that stage. I'd been to BSB, I'd been down at Mandalo Park, but uh, MotoGP was something I hadn't gone to at that stage. And I ended up, it was I was in college and a few of my mates had finished college at that stage. They were all over in California on a J1 and uh, I ended up going over on a holiday and went to Laguna. 
not many better places to uh, break your MotoGP cherry than over there in Laguna Seca for sure. Now, setting the scene for 2006, obviously, uh, well, it was uh, it was a bit of a different era. We had the uh, 990 four-stroke MotoGP machines. This uh, was the final year of that before we uh, reverted to 800cc machines. And, uh, well, we had Valentina Rossi off the back of five straight riders' championships. This was pretty much the Italian riding at his absolute peak. And uh, I think, David, the start of 2006, only a fool would have bet against the Italian going on for a sixth straight title. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, everyone thought it was going to be another uh, another Rossi cleanup. There was obviously the spectacular season in 2004 after Rossi switched from Honda to Yamaha, won the first race at Welcome, which is, again, such an iconic and fantastic race. Um Won the 2004 championship with, you know, some difficulty. I had to put the effort in. 2005, he seemed to win with relative ease. There was never any question that he was going to be a champion. Uh, we were expecting 2006 to be very much more of the same, really. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve, 2006 is obviously a year remembered for Nicky Hayden and his stellar achievements in that campaign. He had a pretty strong end to 2005. I think there was uh, three straight podiums at the end of that year. He'd obviously won his first race as well at Laguna Seca. But from my memory, and I wasn't working in MotoGP at the time, I was just uh, sort of following it religiously, reading websites, magazines, and watching it on TV. But I didn't really get the impression that Nicky was uh, anyone's favorite to even maybe fight for the MotoGP title at the start of this year. Yeah, and that's what's actually good fun about this show for all of us as well, Neil, because none of us were really working in the industry at that stage. As David said, he had just started his site and it hadn't taken off at that stage. So we were all sitting at home, edge of our seats, just like everyone else. And this was a year that captivated all of our attentions. And uh, for someone like Nicky Hayden coming into the year, it's interesting after this whenever you met Nicky when you were able to talk to him and you were able to ask him questions about the season you do it with the benefit of that hindsight and uh, you talk to him about the fact that he came into that year with a lot of expectation for himself but no one else really had that expectation this was his fourth year with Repsol Honda he had been Valentino Rossi's teammate Max Biaggi's teammate uh, I think Alex Barros the year before and then suddenly you've got Danny Pedrosa as well so you'd gone from being that second rider with the team to then suddenly having that young rider come in and let's be be honest, Danny Pedrosa was the chosen future of Honda. He was the rider that Honda saw as being that uh, potential world champion in the making, and it wasn't Nicky Hayden. So for Nicky to go into that year, it really was the internal pressure to try and get results. Honda didn't expect anything. They thought that 2007, with the change of regulations, that's when they'd be able to be a title contender again, and that was going to be with Danny Pedrosa. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was it was... Certainly, when I was sort of like reading about it, it was clear that um, Danny Pedrosa was uh, Honda's chosen. Uh, he was Honda's chosen one because he'd always been a Honda rider for. Uh, he'd uh, won three championships uh, for them. Um, he'd come up through one two fives, two fifties. He'd done, uh, you know, done all the work. Um, he was being groomed to be the world champion. He was expected to follow in the footsteps of Valentino Rossi and challenge Val uh, Valentino Rossi. And um, so, yeah, Honda were. Uh, I wouldn't say focused on uh, on Danny Pedrosa, but it's pretty clear that uh, to them, Pedrosa was the future. 
Yeah, and it was interesting for me whenever you look back at this season and like I said, whenever you talk to Nicky about it and he always said that this was the year where he felt it was now or never. This was his chance to win a championship. You knew that the young riders were coming through. You knew that you had a bit more experience than someone like Pedroza, but you also knew that it was going to be Valentino Rossi at his best. So this was a season where really it didn't start off where he thought he'd be able to win a world championship, but it was where he was going to build towards at least being able to lead the Honda charge. And uh, for him, this was the one opportunity he was going to get to win that world championship. So 2006 kicked off in Jerez at the start of April. Quite a different and uh, in some ways more innocent time in all of our lives was it back then. We we all had the, uh, of course, the tobacco sponsorship was still prevalent in MotoGP. We had five factories plus Kenny Roberts um, KR RC211V, which is basically a Honda engine housed inside a Kenny Roberts designed chassis. And uh, well, pretty much we had uh, podiums for all five factories plus uh, Kenny Roberts' uh, team as well that year. So it was quite a mixed and interesting season. Just going back to April of 2006, Crazy by Niles Barkley was uh, number one in the music charts. And uh, well, we were going through something of a golden age in terms of Hollywood as well. Ice Age, the meltdown topped the US box office charts. I know that's uh, one of your personal favorites, Dave. So, uh, <laughs> and in terms of MotoGP, well, it was uh, quite an interesting grid because, uh, well, mainstays of the class, Alex Barros and Max Biaggi, multiple race winners in years gone by, they had departed. Uh, Biaggi had taken a year off and Alex Barros had gone to World Superbikes. And in their place, we had four outstandingly talented, well, I would say three outstandingly talented rookies. Danny Pedrosa, Casey Stoner, Christopher Mullen, and the equally, uh, well, maybe not equally, but uh, quite impressive in phases, Randy Depunier, who was stepping up for Kawasaki. And, uh, well, just to give you a brief rundown of the grid, the factory Yamaha squad was uh, Valentino Rossi, Colin Edwards. Repsol Honda consisted of Nicky Hayden, Danny Pedrosa. Ducati had signed Seti Gibernoi, Valentino Rossi's closest competitor in 2003 and 2004. And he, of course, was teaming up that year with Loris Caparossi, Suzuki, had John Hopkins and Christopher Mullen, Kawasaki, remember when they were in MotoGP, had Shinya Nakano and Randy Depunier. And we should also mention <clears throat> notable uh, contenders Marco Belandri and Tony Elias, who both played their part in an epic season with uh, Grissini Honda. Looking at the lay of the land that year, it was obviously in some ways a bit of a transition year, Dave, because this was the final year of the 990s. How much uh, did the impending start of the 800cc era play a part in this year? I I think it played quite a big part because what you saw was uh, factory switching development focus from the uh, for, uh, from the 2006 machines, the 990s to the 800s, because obviously the switch to 800cc in 2007 was a big deal. Um, uh, they were trying to slow bikes down, which, uh, as we saw, failed fairly epically. Um, uh, but what you also see is, for example, uh, Suzuki is, is probably the best example because what Suzuki did was uh, they used the 2006 uh, season to test basically that their, their, their 800cc bike with a thousand cc engine in it uh, uh, if you like uh, a lot of the bikes were using um uh, they were testing parts which they were so for example cylinder heads combustion chambers that sort of thing um 
uh, in their uh, in the 800cc bikes, uh, they were testing those already on their uh, uh, on the 990s. So development, it, it's not that development stopped; it's just that it took a little bit of a, 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 a sort of a slightly different path, and that made uh, for you know some interesting racing. Yeah, and Steve, if you were uh, gauging the bikes at the start of that year. I mean, did any particular factory have a have a head start on the other ones? Were were we looking at a pretty equal uh, lay of the land in terms of uh, competition mechanically? Well, well, Yamaha had the head start because they had Valentino Rossi, the best rider in the world, and even at that stage, Rossi still had that edge over everyone else. This was a season that, as the year progressed, you saw inconsistencies from Rossi. You saw some bad luck. We we'll get to that obviously through the course of the podcast, but they still had the best rider in the world. And on any given day, Rossi was still the favourite to win. That's why he won more races than anyone else. He had as many podiums as anyone else. But the big thing was this was a year where there was a lot of depth in the field. Ducati were really strong. This was where they really came into their own in the 990 era. This was their fourth season in the championship. This was their, I think, their third season with Bridgestones. Bridgestone made a big step forward and uh, Caparossi was fantastic all the way through the season. Then when you go further down the grid, the likes of Suzuki made a huge step forward. They went from being being pretty much a midfield runner that were struggling to get themselves into the top 10 in previous years to being able to have, I think, three pole positions, a couple of podiums, and they were a lot stronger. So there was a lot of positives all the way through the field. But one of the things that you could probably look at as well was the tyre war was in effect as well. You had Bridgestone, you had Michelin, and even at Dunlop as well with the Tech Yamahas. So you had that uh, potential for there to be an ebb and flow all the way through. And we'll obviously talk about it as the show goes on. But the Sunday specials or Saturday specials from Michelin would have a big impact through the season and you could have it where riders were able to really come from nowhere at times through the course of the season and have that one weekend where they were fantastic or a couple of a couple of races where they'd be quite anonymous even if they were regular front runners. Yeah, it's a good point, Steve. Obviously, this was the start of that uh, kind of two-year period or three-year period even where we had uh, pretty intense uh, tyre war between Bridgestone and Michelin. Bridgestone had Ducati, Suzuki and Kawasaki all uh, within their ranks that year. And uh, at the first race of the season, there was almost a statement of intent from Bridgestone in that we had an all Bridgestone front row. And that was uh, the first time we'd seen that, I think, in, uh, well, I don't know the exact date, but quite a long time for sure. Um, that would obviously uh, play quite a critical role in the season, as Steve mentioned. Now, look at the preseason testing. The penultimate preseason test of the year was at Catalonia. Colin Edwards was fastest. Valentino Rossi was second. All looked rosy and golden and wonderful at Yamaha. Then we went to Jerez for the final preseason test, and it quickly became clear that things weren't quite right with the uh, 2006 M1. And also, there were just these persistent rumors that Valentino Rossi might not be spending his long-term future in MotoGP, David. It, well, that's right. I mean, he... Um, uh... He'd won so much. He'd won five titles in a row. Uh, uh, he'd had a couple of uh, uh, F1 tests, and I'll let Steve talk about that because he knows much more about it uh, than me. Um, he, you know, Rossi was fast in an F1 car. Uh, the challenge in winning in MotoGP was becoming less and less, and there was a, just a general feeling that, that Rossi had lost a little bit of uh, focus um, uh, during testing because he'd been sort of like thinking about F1 weighing up whether to to go or not to pursue because it would have been a, a, 
a new challenge. Uh, John Surtees is the only rider to uh, ever have won both both the Grand Prix motorcycling and uh, F1 Grand Prix racing. So yeah, there was a general feeling that uh, uh, Valentino Rossi had sort of taken his off the ball a little bit in, in testing, and that caused the Yamaha to have chatter. But um, I mean, Steve, you follow F1 much more closely than uh, than I do. How how close do you think? Rossi was to being able to make the switch to F1? Uh, well, to be honest, from quite a skeptical mind, I think he was fast in an F1 car, but it's one thing to be fast over one lap, a very different thing to be fast over the course of a race distance. It was attractive to have Rossi in Formula One. Obviously, he was one of the biggest stars in motorsport at that stage. Michael Schumacher was coming to the end of his career, so Formula One needed another superstar really to take on that mantle Fernando Alonso did that in Spain and became the top driver in the world but he never really captured that global attention like someone like Rossi would have done but that's one thing to come in and do a few tests it's another thing to do a full season it's another thing to give up a world championship winning bike to go and try and uh, just do something different and I think that the days where any driver or any rider was capable of jumping from MotoGP to cars it's long gone and it's even you still see it now where people will look at Rossi and think that he could do sports car racing and things like that there's Formula 1 drivers that can't adapt to race sports cars so for someone like Rossi to do it now is as unlikely as it was 15 years ago whenever he tried to do the, the Formula 1 tests now just going back to when I was a fan watching MotoGP at the start of 2006 I had really eagerly built up the first race of this season because I was fully expecting a diminutive Spaniard making his MotoGP debut to do something incredibly special at Jerez and he did not disappoint there was one Danny Pedrosa already a three time world champion by the time he was 20 and making his MotoGP debut stepping up into the uh, MotoGP class and uh, from what we saw at the first race Dave this was uh, this was going to be quite a presence in MotoGP for the years to come Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, you know, he was uh, he was the big oh, <laughs> ironic. Uh, he was the big man. He was Honda's big man. He was the next uh, the, the next uh, uh, person they were going to um, who they were expecting to shake it up. They, he was also uh, Honda's revenge on Valentino Rossi. He was the person who was supposed to come in and beat Valentino Rossi and take revenge for uh, Rossi having left uh, and switched to Yamaha. So there was a lot of pressure on him, and he was obviously extremely talented. He was fast in testing. It, it was uh, uh, off the back of a couple of... Uh, 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 I was going to say Moto Two. That's uh, how long it's been. Uh, a couple of two fifty cc championships, um, and he was obviously quick. And again, Jerez is also one of his. Um, uh, Jerez was one of his strongest tracks. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that first race, Steve. I mean, I think we had an indication at the very first corner, the first lap, the first race of the year at Jerez, that this championship wasn't just going to be a regular run-of-the-mill thing. Obviously, Tony Elias clipping Valentino Rossi at the first corner, the Italian goes down, and then suddenly we're thinking, wow, this could be uh, this could be Rossi actually starting the season for once on the back foot. I think it's one of the things that it's always easy to forget, and you can do the same now with Mark Marquez, where you think dominance will always just keep going, but something always gets in the way. For someone like McDoon, it was his crashes at uh, Hareth in uh, 99 leads to injury. For a lot of riders, it's those crashes that end up costing you your career. You get hurt and you can't quite recover from it. 
it didn't really feel that Rossi was going to be on the verge of anything like that. And then suddenly at turn one on lap one, he gets taken out by Tony Elias. And then you start to think, you know what, actually, maybe the luck just can run out for even someone like Rossi. Yeah, and some of that was, of course, because, um, uh, again, as we were talking about, Valentino Rossi losing his focus. Uh, the, the the bike had loads of chatter, especially with new tyres on. And so when he qualified, uh, he qualified down in, um, uh, I think, ninth or 10th. Uh, so he was starting mid-pack. Um, and if you start sort of on the third or fourth row, uh, then you're going to end up uh, in a much more vulnerable, but in a much more vulnerable position, you're you're going to you're much more likely to be next to someone who is going to try and uh, uh, try something a little bit wild, a bit like uh, uh, Tony Elias did, and you're likely to end up in the gravel. So it was uh, it was almost uh, a, a direct result of the this this loss of focus during testing. Yeah, and I think it's uh, easy to forget as well that at this stage, Tony Elias was a really bright prospect as well. This was his second year in the MotoGP class, but he had won 125 Grand Prix. He challenged for a 250 title. He'd been a very strong and complete rider all the way through his junior career. And even this season in uh, MotoGP, when you look back at a lot of the footage from it, he was one of those first real modern looking riding styles as well. He was one of those pioneers. So for Tony Elias at this stage, second season, this is where he was expecting to be able to really build on his experiences and then put together a full championship season or at least a you know a, a season where he could contend. And uh, at the first round, he qualified in the second row of the grid and then obviously just into turn one has that clash with Rossi. Well, obviously, Danny Pedrosa was uh, stealing the headlines in some respects by uh, well pushing for the lead for much of this race before uh, settling for a, a really fantastic second place on his MotoGP debut, a sterling introduction into the Premier class and pretty much uh, banishing a lot of doubts that were held prior to this race about uh, Pedroza's size and his weight and whether he could manhandle the big weight, uh, the big heavy 990 machines. But Loris Caparossi was the rider that uh, not only took pole position, but uh, also led every single lap of the race on his way to a pretty uh, convincing Grand Prix victory. And then we went from Jerez to Qatar for round two. We were still racing in the daylight in Qatar back in 2006. And uh, while Danny Petrosa might have been the man in race one, it was uh, a certain Australian that was uh, going to have a pretty uh, seminal effect on the Premier Class of Grand Prix racing in the years after this. He really made his presence felt at the second round of the year, David. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, th this was definitely the uh, the race where Casey Stoner arrived. Um, we were still racing uh, during the day and uh, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, rather than uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and uh, Stoner turned up with the flu. Uh, he missed a flight and ended up only getting into Qatar on the uh, Thursday morning. Uh, uh, didn't seem to affect him, came straight in, uh, was fast, uh, uh, ended up uh, uh, taking the pole and um, just really blowing blowing everyone away. Yeah, not just that, but uh, obviously I think he was uh, he was leading the race for the first uh, the first third of the running and uh, it was only in the later stages of the race that um, he started to drop back. He eventually finished in fifth place ahead of Danny Pedrosa, but it was Valentino Rossi going to his... Uh, First win of the season ahead of Nicky Hayden and Loris Caparossi. But uh, Stoner certainly was uh, showing just what a talent he was. 
Yeah, and also uh, this is the downside of the tire wars. Whenever people were sort of you know long back to the tire wars, um, uh, Stoner was on the LCR Honda a satellite bike. They didn't get the support from Michelin. Uh, they weren't getting the, uh, the the good tires flown in. Um, they had whatever was left in the uh, in the Michelin truck, and so Stoner was always battling against uh, the tires which. It never really worked for him, which he had to uh, to, to make work, and so uh, I think that had a big uh, a, a big effect. Now, and that's not the same now. Now everyone gets the same tires, and so you know that um, uh, uh, if you can make a tire work, you're going to have the same tire as the factory guys, and that's uh, that was absolutely not the case in 2006. And I thought one of the interesting things reading back about this race was afterwards, Valentino Rossi was asked about Stoner, and he said that his riding style was. Uh, perfect to take advantage of when the tyre was new, but he still had a lot to learn about how to manage the tyres in the second half of the race when the grip wasn't quite as adequate as the first half. And of course, this was put to Casey straight afterwards and he uh, responded in a very fiery Casey Stoner-like manner, basically saying, no, it was nothing to do with uh, me not knowing how to use the tyres. It was because I had cramps on my leg and I wasn't feeling well. And I think that was maybe just the first little window we saw of that uh, kind of fire that was in Casey's belly that would uh, become a real staple and a mainstay of, uh, of him in his later years. Yeah, and it was interesting with Stoner as well because the whole season was all about backs against the wall because he was supposed to race for the Pons team going into 2006 and that team folded and suddenly he needed to find somewhere to ride and he ended up with LCR and uh, as David said, they didn't have the same level of tyres, they didn't have the same level of support so you're on the back foot from the outset, really, but uh, you know, somewhere like Qatar, second Grand Prix, puts it on pole position, as you said, Neil fights at the front of the field for the first half of the race, and then just in that second half, then just starts to fade away a little bit. But it was really strong stuff for a guy who only a second Grand Prix. Yeah, and also, uh, I spoke to Livio Supo uh, uh, maybe four or five years ago, and he told me that actually GK were looking to sign. Uh, they were thinking about signing Stoner for the 2006 season. Uh, in the end, UK management decided to go with uh, experience and sign Seta Gibanao instead. Um, and that would become, obviously become a really, really big theme through 2006 and then uh, into 2007. Like Qatar was the season's first really good race, but I think Turkey, the third round of the season, was the season's first outstanding race. We had a, a four-way five-foot lead, basically four Hondas, Marco Melandri, the two Repsol bikes, and also... Uh, Casey Stoner were up at the front of that race, but it was Christopher Mullen and Suzuki who put it on pole, uh, astonishingly. Uh, another of the uh, talented rookies coming through and showing uh, just his class. But uh, I think Turkey was the first sign that, that Yamaha were in real trouble because uh, Valentino Rossi qualified badly, but uh, was uh, kind of anonymous in the race. And this was, uh, this was a completely alien experience. If you had been watching MotoGP in the the season before, Valentino Rossi was always up at the front looking competitive unless there was uh, some serious technical uh, defect. We just weren't used to seeing him well out of the podium fight. Yeah, and for Rossi, this was after Turkey definitely was one of those wake-up calls because he was fifth or sixth in the championship. It hadn't been an easy start to the year. Even in Qatar, despite winning the race, they were still struggling with the chatter issues that David had mentioned earlier on. And it didn't look like it was going to solve itself. It looked like it was going to take a lot of work to do that. And 
then when you go to somewhere like Istanbul where everyone seemed to be fast you know Suzuki's on pole like you said Neil with Vermeulen the Hondas were going well Ducati were really strong even Hopkins qualified in the second row with the grid as well so the Suzuki was just a really strong package that weekend and then you put into the mix all the rookies it, it really was a, a time where it would have been like a a cold shower for Rossi where suddenly there's that rude awakening that this is going to be a really tough season. Yeah. And also it's a, I mean, it was a, such a fantastic track as well. Istanbul park. I mean, it seemed like a, uh, um, it looks a bit odd on the, um, uh, sort of when, when you see it, um, uh, when you just see the layout, but that, uh, right hander on the back, uh, uh, on the back straight, um, what is it turn 11? I think, uh, it, it, one of the, one of the fastest corners on the, uh, uh on the calendar and j- just seeing the bikes flying through there, you really got a sense of just exactly how fast that, uh, that, tr- that, that track was. And uh, again, one of the reasons the, the, the race was so exciting was because of that the, those last few corners where there's a, a chance to attack but also counter attack a bit like you know the, the, you always want a chicane or something like that but, the, uh, at the end of a um uh, before the finish line because that that gives riders so many different options to actually attack and that was what made for such a thrilling race at the end uh, one of the other things that made for an interesting race as well was the progress of Danny Pedrosa because he qualified all the way down at the back of the field and in the first couple of rounds of the year he had struggled with the full tank and the fresh tyres to make a good start and, and make progress in the early laps but in this race he really came through the field and uh, you know led the race and uh, was really strong throughout. Yeah, only a, a late crash for Pedrosa at turn one put him out of the action and uh, well a late move from Marco Malandri denied Casey Stoner his first uh, Grand Prix victory in the MotoGP class, but it was a, a real stunning race. And uh, Melandri finishing ahead of Stoner with Nicky Hayden third. Crucially, this was the first time that Nicky Hayden came away from a round leading the MotoGP World Championship, and he would go on to do so for the majority of the season. Now, uh, Turkey was astonishing. China, the next race, obviously threw up Danny Pedrosa's first win and uh, a pretty serious uh, front tyre issue for Valentino Rossi, which caused him to retire. We then went to Le Mans, where Rossi had a mechanical failure. Marco Melandri would win that race. And suddenly we've got a really interesting title fight here. And then we go to Mugello. Valentino Rossi, eighth in the championship, 43 points down on the championship leader, Nicky Hayden. And I would say that Mugello stands still as possibly one of Rossi's three best races ever. It was that good. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an absolutely fantastic, uh, uh, absolutely fantastic race anyway, and just a superb performance. Um, uh, it was also a race that Rossi really, really needed because um, uh, the the issue in China was uh, the the front tire was chunking just basically because of the uh, chatter that uh, uh, that the Yamaha was suffering from. Uh, he came into the pits, they changed his back tire, whereas the, it was actually his front tire, which was missing bits of um, uh, bits of rubber. So he was forced to retire. And then he was forced to retire again in Lamar due to a, uh, uh, due to the, the, you know, the, the engine overheating, the, the engine just basically letting go. Um, so he was really on the back foot. So to come back and, uh, beat absolutely fantastic. It was a fantastic. Uh, I mean, it was just a slugfest. Um, uh, the whole uh, the, the the whole race. Mugello, when it's good, as we saw, uh, as we saw, was it last year or two? Th- yeah, as we saw in two thousand nineteen, 
when Mugello's good, it's absolutely superb. And this was one of those absolutely classic races. Yeah, this was one where we saw the two Ducatis, Gibernau and Caparossi, fighting up at the front. We saw Hayden and Pedrosa there as well. Casey Stoner also made a brief appearance, as did uh, Marco Melandri. But uh, Steve Rossi really had to dig deep to produce uh, one of his greatest displays to uh, beat all of them. Yeah, this was six riders all battling at the front the whole way through. There was, I think, half a second separated the podium men. It was just cut and thrust the whole time. And it was interesting to see how a lot of riders sort of fluctuated through this race. And this is one of the real classics of the 990 era, as you said, Neil, one of Rossi's best ever wins quite comfortably but it was also important because he needed it to be one of his best wins leaving Italy if he had been beaten here it really would have been very difficult to get a championship challenge going again because I think after Mugello he was 35 points behind Caparossi or something like that he had seen Caparossi very consistent through the early rounds Nicky Hayden was pretty much always inside the top four or five positions in each of these races so for Rossi it was really crucial to pick up another win yeah, absolutely. And we left Mugello with uh, pretty much five riders in the championship fight. We had uh, Caparossi and Hayden tied on the lead with Melandri, Pedroza, and then Rossi all still within a fight. Uh, Catalunya was a uh, pretty interesting round in that, uh, well, Loris Caparossi, Marco Melandri, uh, they avoided near disaster uh, with the first round pileup that we saw uh, going into turn one. And that obviously opened up the way for, uh, for Rossi uh, to go and win quite comfortably. Um, but uh, that almost put Caparossi and Melandri on the back foot then for, well, the middle part of the season. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge uh, issue for Caparossi because at this point we were basically looking at, L at Loris Caparossi as the favourite to win the championship because he had been so strong through that first part of the uh, through, through the first part of the year. Uh, the UK was looking strong because, you know, both... Uh, Capirossi and Gibernau uh, were quick. Um, uh, that first quarter pileup ha ended up having a lot of consequences because that was the point at which um, the the Grand Prix uh, uh, or the, the the Grand Prix Commission started seriously considering uh, brake uh, uh, brake protectors. Um, they were introduced a couple of uh, a couple of years later. Uh, basically, um, uh, the little metal hook which sits in front of the front brake, so that if uh, so that it can't be um, uh, applied accidentally if you hit a, uh, hit another rider. Um, so yeah, it, it had huge consequences. I think also Gibernau broke his uh, ended up breaking his uh, breaking his collarbone there. Um, uh, Capi Rossi was in a real state. He was really really quite badly beaten up um, uh, 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 in the crash. So yeah. It, like I said, it had absolutely, it had absolutely huge effects and impact on uh, uh, on his on his life, really. And it was interesting as well, just to see the impact it had on Melandri as well, because if you think back to 2005, he had finished second in the World Championship. He had come into 2006 with a lot of expectation on what he could do, and it was you know a season where he actually performed slightly better than what he had the previous year. But instance like this just ended up really putting him on the back foot as well. And it took him away from having any sort of momentum at this important part of the season. As David said as well, it really impacted on Caparossi. But this was the first round where Nicky Hayden led the championship. And uh, Rossi was now 29 points behind. And it was now going to be a case to see whether or not he'd be able to overturn that over the coming couple of months. Because we'd seen in the first 
seven races of the year that Hayden was going to be strong. He was going to be consistent all the way through the season. And uh, for Rossi, it was now going to be a case of you have to start winning races. He did that in Barcelona. And then you were going to go on to the next race and see whether or not he was going to be able to keep finding solutions with the Yamaha. Yeah, Yamaha had been throwing different chassis and uh, swing on combinations of Valentino in the first couple of races of the year. I think it was at Le Mans where he found a combination which finally he felt not in qualifying trim, but certainly in race trim, the chatter was certainly nowhere near as bad as it had been in the opening couple of races of the year. His qualifying was still suffering uh, because with uh, super soft tyres, he wasn't quite able to take advantage of that. But certainly from Le Mans, yes, he had some bad luck. Uh, but uh, you certainly saw in his performances at Mugello and then in Barcelona that, uh, yes, he, uh, he was certainly back on the front foot. But such was the nature of uh, racing in 2006. Just when you thought one rider had a bit of a foothold and was coming back, as we did Valentino Rossi after Catalonia, then we go to Assen, Dave, and Thursday morning, something quite quite ludicrous for the time happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Rossi had a crash. He uh, uh, broke a bone in his wrist, the uh, pissy form, which is uh, one of the row, uh, one in the row of... Um, uh, bones like the scaphoid, which are really difficult, very painful in his right hand. So uh, it's all about acceleration and braking. Um, uh, they were fears that Rossi wouldn't even make the race and that he'd be forced to to, to miss uh, uh, miss a race for the first time. Um, but he sort of he, he managed to get. He managed to qualify. He managed to start. He managed to finish the race, but he was in a really, really bad. Uh, he was in a pretty bad way um, uh, there, and uh, it was a. It was exactly what he didn't need uh, in his championship uh, charge because of what happened uh, uh, at the front between uh, Niggy Hayden and Colin Colin Edwards. Yeah, and no one really remembers. Well, that's not the first thing that people think about when we talk about Aston 2006, Rossi's injury. Of course, it is that last lap, that last chicane showdown between the two Americans, Steve. Yeah, and this was the first year where we had the new Aston layout, but luckily they kept the good parts of the old Aston and we were able to still have the end of the lap and uh, the fast section that led into the final chicane. And yeah, that uh, battle between the two Americans was really the the key thing for this race. It's the one memory everyone has. And it went right down to the wire. This was Edwards trying to finally win his first Grand Prix. It was Nicky Hayden trying to prove he could win somewhere other than Laguna Seca as well. And uh, this was a race that went right down to the wire and gave us all a really memorable final lap. Sorry, the green Kawasaki of Shinya Nakano. But what is happening at the front? Nicky Hayden is going to win his second Grand Prix of his MotoGP career. Colin Edwards chasing, chasing, chasing. Can Colin Edwards have one more bite at him? Well, he may. They're at the bottom end of the circuit. There's still the chicane to come. And you just get the feeling Colin Edwards is going to throw caution to the wind. Colin Edwards on the Yamaha, closing up on Nicky Hayden. They're coming up towards the left-hander now. They're into the right. Edwards side by side. And Colin Edwards has retaken the lead. Edwards has retaken the lead from Nicky Hayden. Colin Edwards chasing his first ever Grand Prix victory. They're into the chicane. Oh, Hayden and Edwards side by side. Edwards holds the advantage. Hayden's oh, got into the dirt. And Colin Edwards is going to win his first Grand Prix. Unbelievable. Nicky Hayden crosses the line. Colin Edwards oh. has gone down oh. in the dirt, would you believe oh. it? Colin Edwards had the checkered flag in sight. 
Colin Edwards has crashed out of the Dutch TT here at Assen. And Nicky Hayden has won the race. Shinya Nakano in second place. And Danny Pedrosa third. Colin Edwards, what? Cruel, cruel luck. And his well, teammate Valentino Rossi and finishing the race in eighth place. So that was the memorable conclusion of the 2006 Dutch Grand Prix. What excitement and what drama at the very final chicane. We then, of course, went to Donington Park for the British Grand Prix after that. That was Danny Pedrosa's second MotoGP win. He did so in a pretty convincing style, winning out ahead of Valentino Rossi, who was making a pretty impressive comeback um, after his eighth place at Assen. He then got a second place in Donington. But uh, this was maybe the first time that we saw Nicky Hayden have a pretty pretty disappointing result, Dave, and there were, there were some interesting reasons behind that. Hayden, of course, finishing that race down in seventh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, obviously, with uh, Pedrosa being a rookie and uh, Hayden being the experienced uh, rider, he was also the the guy who was actually uh, doing a lot of the, the development for the um, uh, for the 2007 machine, and that meant there were various bits and bobs. Um, uh, there was the clutch, for example. They were they were trying to play with the clutch basically all year, and that caused. Um, uh, Hayden all sorts of problems um uh, he was getting all sorts of other bit, sort of uh, parts i think uh, uh to a, a new uh, a swing arm which meant they had a completely different uh, exhaust system and um Hayden really paid the uh, paid uh, uh, paid the price for that uh, because he finished down in seventh place um and lost a, again we we saw the swinging momentum again. Uh, uh, Hayden, or for, uh, Hayden had won in um, Hayden had won in Assen, and Rossi had had a, a you know a, a fairly mediocre uh, race because uh, due to his injury. And now we see Rossi on the podium and um, uh, Hayden uh, down in seventh. So there was uh, this was a, also a, a theme. Throughout the championship of of these wild swings between the between the two, one rider would win one uh, uh, one week and then someone else the next. Yeah, and sometimes uh, in terms of F one, people look at nineteen ninety three and say that okay, Ayrton Senna might not have won the championship that year, but certainly in uh, a car that wasn't the best on the grid, produced some of his most memorable performances. And I think the same could be said about Valentino Rossi in two thousand and sixty, because well. Mugello was one highlight, but I also think the German Grand Prix, Saxon Ring, the 10th round of the season, was uh, another demonstration that Rossi was operating at the absolute peak of his powers. 11th place he qualified on the grid, yet in a quite astonishing four-way fight at the front with him, Melandri, and the two Repsol Hondas, Rossi somehow managed to hold them all off. Yeah, I remember uh, I was actually, I was working at the time for this race, and uh, I took my lunch break just to go up and watch the MotoGP race because I, I always did that on a Sunday and uh, I remember going up to the canteen and uh, sit there and you get up just before the start of the race and obviously you're excited for it and you think that this is actually going to be a really good day's racing in Germany it, it had set up for it but uh, what actually ended up happening was ludicrous we had four riders all separated I think it was two or three tenths at the checkered flag we had everyone chopping and changing in that front group it was a battle that was unlike anything really that we had through the course of of a few years because Rossi had to as you said Neil just dig unbelievably deep he was the only Yamaha at the front of the field he was up against the Hondas and uh, you know he just his race craft through the course of that race was fantastic and you know you mentioned Mugello earlier as being one of those races that Rossi 
found a way to win. This was another one as well. Yeah, exactly. I remember sort of almost in every report I wrote, well, uh, uh, you know, after Turkey saying, wow, what a race. This is one of the best races we've seen for ages. And then Mugello, oh my God, what a race. Uh, this is the, one of the best races we've seen for years. And then uh, Assen, oh my God, what a race. Uh, this is one of the best races. We've seen. And it just seemed like every way, you know, it, it was basically every week was the best year ever or the best, uh, the best race ever. Um, it was just remarkable. Yeah, Colin Edwards. Uh, Rossi's uh, teammate finished that race in 12th. And I remember his quote after the race saying, Valentino somehow managed to conjure up something like his 500th miracle to win that. And Edwards's tone was just one of total disbelief that Rossi had managed to do what he did. And I think that was also a race where we saw the engineering genius of his crew chief, Jeremy Burgess, because Burgess knew if Rossi could have a bike that was strong on the brakes into the left hand of the penultimate turn at the, the bottom off the, the waterfall, the back, the back straight. If Rossi had a, a good bike there, he could pass anyone and basically he could do his own magic in the rest of the track to make up for the bike's deficits. And it was quite an impressive technical strategy from Burgess's part to ensure that Rossi was as strong into the brakes there. And if you watch back the race, I mean, he was doing all of his moves into that downhill left. And, uh, well, the Hondas basically had no answer for him. Yeah, I mean that is the that is the overtaking corner uh, around the Saxon Ring because it, you know it is uh, w this hard braking zone, but you do have to be able to hold everyone off uh, through through the rest of it. So yeah, if you can if you can get ahead there, if you can get ahead and breaking into uh, turn and uh, was it turn twelve, um, then you just have to make sure that you you don't give anyone a chance to to counter attack through turn thirteen, uh, and then you should be okay to lead through um, uh, uh, across the line. But even then, it was such a close run thing. It's also, at this stage, we're halfway through the season, just, just past the halfway point, and it becomes more and more crucial for Rossi to be able to pick up those race wins and, you know, as both of you said, just really find a way to excel, find a way to get the race wins because after this, you know, the championship really does start to uh, the rounds just fall away from riders. So you need to make sure you're able to pick up your points. You need to make sure you're able to close down the gaps. And uh, for Rossi, now it was down to, I think, 26 points after Saxon Ring. So it became really important just to keep that pressure. It did. It became super important. But obviously, that didn't quite uh, ring true once we uh, left Laguna Seca for the 11th round. I'll tell you what, the MotoGP journalists, riders and technicians they certainly earned their summer break back in 2006. We had 11 races in the first half of the year, and Laguna Seca was the final one of those in that season's first half. And uh, just as we saw the season before, it was uh, a bit of a Nicky Hayden whitewash. The American rolling to his uh, second win of the year, his third in total in MotoGP, and in fact, the final time that we saw Nicky actually win a race in uh, the Premier class. But Another interesting uh, little detail that I had almost forgotten about before I started uh, researching this season, Christian Mullen was uh, the rider that led the first half of that race. And it was only basically around the midway point that Nicky Hayden managed to overtake him and then pull away. Yeah, I mean the, the the one thing about this race was just the heat. It was incredibly hot that uh, uh, that weekend. Um, they were having to ship in water uh, uh, to 
just keep the um, uh, keep the crowd from dying almost. Um, it was it, so it's extremely hot. There, it was that was causing tire problems. It's causing engine problems. Um, uh, Christopher Mullen suffered, I think, a, uh, a, 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 a he was having problems with the fuel pump. I, I don't know if that was also caused by the uh, uh, by the heat. Um, and of course, Valentino Rossi dropping out because the hot conditions meant that um, uh, a a coolant pipe let go and um uh, you know another technical uh, technical problem that was that was basically his third technical retirement uh, during the season yeah and i think it's probably worth noting that they did run out of water at laguna that weekend i remember on the friday after like the uh, the opening day of practice they'd actually already ran out of water at most places and uh, there was nothing for sale you couldn't get any water for love or money on saturday and i remember going to different taps around the place and you'd fill up a hat just with basically a hat full of water you throw it over the top of your head and within you know two minutes you were bone dry again i've never experienced heat like laguna that weekend and it was it was that horrendous i remember on the sunday morning that uh, the ama superbike race was on and uh, you know everyone was excited to see it it was spees and maladin that was you know big action but it was too hot for anyone to actually sit out on a metal grandstand because at Laguna it was still metal bleachers all the way along the the pit straight and uh, it was way too hot for that so in underneath the grandstand we were all just sitting underneath there there was I don't know how many people were sitting underneath it but we were all just trying to find any shade we could so it was only at about 25 minutes to the start of the MotoGP race so that the pit lane would have opened 20 minutes before the start of the race and it was only at that stage that people left from underneath the grandstand to actually go upstairs and uh, sit on the bleachers but it was you know it wasn't just the water that was the issue that year I remember like the park and ride system was a disaster it was Laguna's second year back in uh, MotoGP and it was just beset by problems and uh, you know obviously enough over time all, the, all of those problems get ironed out but that first uh, couple of years was just one thing after the other and uh, luckily enough there was a home winner at the end of it but like yeah i think the crowd were ready to ready to mutiny at one stage over the course of the weekend <laughs> well just as well we had a bit of a summer break for everyone to cool off and cool down after uh, Laguna Seca. the title race well it seemed to uh, basically be uh, in nicky hayden's favor after that 51 points he led valentino rossi by and had a pretty a healthy advantage over Danny Pedrosa, who finished second in America, and then Loris Caparossi, who is still not quite recovered from that Catalonia spill. But then, when we resumed for the second half of the season, or part two of the season, in Brno, Loris Caparossi came back to, uh, well, to win a fantastic race in Brno. Valentino Rossi second, Danny Pedrosa third, Nicky Hayden down in ninth. And then we went to Sepang, and we saw the roles reversed at the front, Rossi beaten Caparossi this time out, Pedroza again third, Nicky Hayden failing to get on the podium again. Suddenly, there was real momentum behind Rossi, also Caparossi as well. And uh, this was still very much a four-horse, maybe even a five-horse race, if we were to include Marco Melandri, in the championship. Yeah, and also also worth pointing out that uh, Pedrosa got on the uh, uh, on the podium after having a huge smash in practice and uh, really badly damaging his uh, um, uh, damaging his, his ankle. Um, again, there was some controversy because I mean it was uh, Sepang in uh, what September, so it was really really hot, um, and uh, everyone was suffering. But um, 
Pedrosa had sat on a uh, had sat on a chair on the uh, uh, on the grid um, uh, because it was obviously he was having difficulty uh, standing, and then. Uh, uh, on the podium ceremony, Valentino Rossi came out and uh, uh, bought a chair with him and sat sat down. And the uh, Spanish press did not take that uh, um, uh, as well as they might have. They thought it was uh, some kind of an insult that they was uh, that they he was mocking Pedrosa in some way. Um, and that started off, uh, you know, a, a little bit of um, a niggle, and also, you know, the whole mind games thing. There is the, uh, the, the there is the uh, the image of Rossi as being the master of mind games, and they were, this was seen as um, him trying to uh, put Pedrosa in his place again. Yeah, well, at least we never saw any outrage between Rossi and the Spanish media at Spain ever again in the future. <laughs> there is that. Then, of course, we went to Phillip Island next time. And, well, Steve, we had our first ever flag-to-flag race at the Australian Grand Prix this year. Of course, the, the takeaway image is Marco Belandri's epic slide out of the final turn on the final lap on his way to victory, spinning up the rear tire, one hand off the handlebar, signifying his position in the race. Um, but uh, that was a pretty dramatic race as well. And this was really when the championship was coming into a very, very, very tense period. And uh, the implications of having almost uh, such a wild card thrown into it with uh, everyone having to make a pit stop in the middle of the race. I mean, the, the tensions were, were heightened to, well, something I couldn't even... I couldn't even comprehend. Yeah, and it was, as you said, Neil, the first time we'd ever seen the flag to flag. So no one really knew what to expect from it. And even just the conditions all the way through the weekend had been inconsistent. I think uh, Andrea Ballerini won the mode with a one, two, five race. And uh, it was absolutely just sogging conditions. I actually, I remember this race just because I started college on the Monday, I think it was. And uh, we had like a massive party on the Saturday night. And uh, I remember going up to, uh, it was actually, it was my dad's, 60th I think is what we had on uh, on the night before the uh, the Grand Prix and uh, wake up in the middle of the night and uh, you know the, the 125 race was a bit crazy the 250 race was crazy and then suddenly you've got this flag to flag race so you know it was uh, action all the way we didn't know what to expect and it was something a bit unusual and it was interesting to see who would react to it we saw some riders really sink like a stone once they came in to make their changes we saw Melandri really just make a lot of progress all the way through the second half of the race and he ended up just miles out in front yeah uh, there were also concerns because this was um uh, the, the first flag to flag race um th- Phillip Island is probably the smallest and, and tightest uh, pit lane uh, on the calendar. And there were real concerns that, uh, uh, as to whether it would even be possible to do this in, um, uh, uh, it, at Phillip Island to, to do a flag-to-flag race. So uh, for it to actually happen there was also uh, a little bit of a worry. And it was early again. It was 17th September. So it, th- that's basically still the winter in, uh, in Australia. Um, so there was a, a fair amount of concerns about that as well. So it was, um, uh, it was fascinating. But like you say, I mean, the Melandry, the, the, uh, uh, Melandry victory slide is one of the iconic uh, images of MotoGP, I think. So yeah, for Mullen, a fantastic second. Rossi, uh, getting another couple of points back on Nicky Hayden in the championship fight because Hayden finished fifth after qualifying on pole, but it was an absolute nightmare start for the American. Had been having starting issues, clutch issues, all through the year. 
And this was another disastrous getaway. From first, he ended up first lap outside the top 15, David. And uh, this is where you maybe just had the inkling that Nicky was starting to feel a bit of pressure. Oh, I mean, definitely. It, it, it had been like this uh, all the way through the championship. And it was um, because Hayden had got off to such a strong start. Uh, and he seemed to be, especially after Laguna Seca, he seems to be sort of, you know, comfortably in charge. But then uh, at every round, he seemed to be uh, hemorrhaging points. And he was still uh, doing all this, all this test work for Honda. And it, that was starting to rankle with him a little bit. Um, he was really wanting to be, you know, focusing on, on trying to win the championship. Uh, because he could see that the championship was there for him uh, to to win, and he really needed to just to focus on uh, getting the best results he could and trying to get bring this thing home. Yeah, and sadly for Nicky, things didn't get a lot better when we went for the Japanese Grand Prix at Mitegi uh, the next weekend. Because uh, again, he hemorrhaged a couple of more points to Valentino Rossi. There, he was only fifth, while Cap Rossi won. Rossi finished second, and with just two races remaining after this, I think we could safely say that it was a, a two-horse race because Rossi had managed to get himself back up to second in the championship, some 12 points behind Nicky Hayden. Steve? Yeah, yeah and uh, for Caparossi, this was one of those great race wins as well. This was another time where we saw that you know Bridgestone had doubled down on the circuits that were really strong the previous year, places like Brno and Motegi. And uh, for Caparossi, this was a, a really strong race win. Uh, worth noting as well that uh, at Motegi is when Nicky Hayden was confirmed as staying on at Repsol Honda for uh, the following season as well and uh, obviously putting all the work on the 2007 bike in already at this second half of the year with the development work that we're doing. Yeah, uh, it's a good point about Bridgestone's strong uh, circuits because what, what a lot of them had in common was the fact that uh, they were too far away from Michelin to be able to bring in their Saturday night specials. Um, uh, they were, uh, I mean, Michelin couldn't be Making tires on the Friday night and then and then flying them uh, based on the data from Friday and then uh, and then flying them over to to Japan and so uh, Bridgestone's strategy of building tires with a much wider operating window, uh, which were didn't quite have the same peak performance when they were perfect, um, but did have a much way a, a, a bigger window in which they were just really really good. That was when you when it sort of paid off and that uh, to an extent sort of uh, presaged what happened what would happen afterwards. 2007 once they changed the rules and made everyone choose their tyres on the Thursday night rather than uh, allowing them to just uh, choose the tyres whenever they wanted. Yeah, and with Marco Melantri finishing that race in third, he slipped to 27 points behind Nicky Hayden in the championship and probably that meant that uh, we had a two-way title fight going to Estoril for the penultimate race of the year. Now, I remember when I was watching MotoGP, I couldn't really ever recall an interesting or even a, a really memorable race at Estoril in the Premier Class. It was tight. It, uh, along with Laguna Seca, I think it was one of the slowest tracks, average speed-wise, on the calendar. It just wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a layout that really lent itself to, to great racing. It was stop-start in some places. There were lots of hairpins, slow corners. Um, I don't think anyone could have predicted just what we were in for that afternoon. No, I mean it was it. It was not a great track, but it was a great track to actually visit. It's the one track which everyone really regrets not being on the calendar, not because of the racing, but for everyone who actually had to go there because it was such a fantastic place to stay. Um, 
but it, yeah, it was a little bit like Barcelona, but much, much slower in the sense that um, uh, it had the, the, the layout looks a little bit similar, but it was made much slower by, for example, the uh, the, the chicane. The chicane is it's quite a sort of steep uphill um, uh, chicane. And it's, uh, if I remember correctly, that was basically the slowest uh, corner on the calendar at the time. So it was um, it, it was a tough place, but by God, did we get a fight? Uh, uh, I mean, we got a fight all the way to the uh, to the line, but there was just so much drama. Yeah, and Estera was actually, before they made the changes to the track as well, the first two corners were really fast as well. Whenever it first uh, came in as a Formula One track, those first two right-handers were a very different to what they became when they were a lot tighter for when MotoGP ended up uh, leaving uh, Portugal. But uh, yeah, David, as you said, like this was a track where... You had that really slow corner. You had lots of lots of stuff that really wasn't that interesting, but it ended up for, as Neil said, this one rare Premier Class Grand Prix where it all came together. And, and it, in a way, it was also the fact that uh, it was such a slow, or there were slow parts. You could actually use that. So uh, the the chicane was perfect for block passes. Uh, we saw, I think, Colin Edwards uh, put some just amazing block passes through there uh, to stop people, to slow people down, stop them from trying to uh, catch up for, with us. So um, yeah, it, that was a that was just an amazing thing to see. Now, for us looking in. It probably seemed like it was a two-way title fight. But for Danny Pedrosa in fifth place, he was 35 points back of Hayden going into this race. And Pedrosa at this time, of course, was being mentored by one Alberto Puj, who is now, of course, the, uh, the team manager of the entire Repsol Honda racing team. And Puj, apparently, was uh, still trying to convince his rider that he was very much in the mix for this championship. If he could win the final two races of the year, then Pedrosa still had a justifiable chance of winning the title in that. Well, it was that ambition that Pedroza had that had such a crucial impact on this race and on this championship. Yeah, I mean, again, another one of those iconic images from this championship and probably from MotoGP overall is um, Danny Pedrosa. Honestly, it wasn't so much... Um, it wasn't so much reckless as just a simple rookie mistake. Pedrosa has never been known as a as a you know a, a dirty rider or a uh, a very physical rider. Obviously, because of his physical size, but he tried to dive up the inside of uh, of um, uh, Hayden, lost the front, and wiped them both out. And um, uh, obviously, yeah, the sign of the the, the sight of. Nicky Hayden standing in the gravel, screaming in frustration, and uh, you didn't need to be able to lip read to see that um, uh, he was using uh, some quite strong language to express his uh, uh, just how upset he was. Yeah, and what was interesting for it though was the lap before the Pedrosa attempted pass, Nicky Hayden had made pretty much the exact same move on Pedrosa, and uh, then Danny tried to return the favour the following lap, and as you said. Uh, David just makes a mistake and obviously at the time it's a mistake that has massive implications suddenly after this race you know Nicky Hayden's not leading the championship Rossi's leading it for the first time in the season you're suddenly very much on the back foot and it even had uh, the impact where you know Ducati were calling Nicky Hayden after this asking just like how how dry is the ink on your contract for next year and uh, you know there was all these sort of things that led from from this one instant as well uh 
there would have been good reason for DK to uh, uh, contact um, uh, Nicky Hayden. There was, I mean, uh, Alberto Pooch was uh, uh, at the time also in, in a role for Dorna and a, uh, uh, a, a news item appeared on the uh, Dorna website in which basically Alberto Pooch said that, um, uh, you know, Nicky Hayden wasn't a very good rider and uh, he was also taking, um, uh, taking the data from Danny Pedrosa and Danny Pedrosa had every right to go for the, to try to go for the, uh, uh, for the gap that was there and um, uh, generally uh, not doing his best to make the situation in the, uh, in the Repsol Honda garage um, uh, uh, any more congenial than it, uh, than it already was. Um, uh, all credit to Danny Pedrosa because Danny Pedrosa saw it very, very differently. Danny Pedrosa was extremely contrite afterwards and said, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. And um, uh, he came into Hayden's uh, uh, garage and apologized and uh, said, um, uh, look, I'll try and do whatever I uh, can to help you try and win the championship. Now, as I wasn't uh, a professional journalist working at this time, no reason to be completely objective. Uh, I remember being a pretty ardent Nicky Hayden fan at this, uh, in this particular instance, and I was pretty gutted. I thought that uh, that crash was, hands down, the end of his championship challenge, and that Rossi would ride off into the distance. But 2006 should have taught me otherwise. It should have taught me to expect the unexpected. And from there, what we had was, well, I mean, take the Hayden and Pedroza clash out of this and you still had an absolutely exceptional race because, well, Colin Edwards was strong. Kenny Roberts Jr. was strong. We'd seen that before. But from nowhere, there was a, a diminutive Spaniard who had uh, pretty big intentions on uh, upsetting the Yamaha party at the front of the race. And that was uh, in part because of the tyre war again, because Tony Elias had a set of tyres from uh, which Danny Pedrosa had been made, especially for Danny Pedrosa, but Pedrosa decided not to use, which he didn't like. He went with he, he went with different tyres, but that meant that um, uh, Elias had these um, uh, Saturday night specials, and. Uh, Pat saw him mixing it up at the front, and uh, that made uh, a lot of difference. And again, as you said, Kenny Roberts Jr. Um, came very, very close to actually winning this race and would have won this race if he looked at his uh, pit board properly and not uh, and, and not realised that there was a uh, uh, there was another lap to go. Yeah, Rossi said that uh, Tony Elias rode like a devil, Steve. I mean, we had seen him obviously perform well in the lower categories before and have a couple of pretty uh, impressive performances in MotoGP, but. This seemed like a real bolt, bolt from the blue. Yeah, and I think that it's easy to look at Tony now and not really remember how highly rated he was in those junior classes. He was one of the first of those riders that came through the Telefonica Movie Star Cup route with Pooch looking after them in the 125 class. He was Pedroza's teammate. There was Juan Alive on that team at that time as well. And uh, then he went to Aspar in the 250 class. It was him and Fonzie Nieto. He was winning races. He was a regular front runner. And then he went to MotoGP, but he went on a Yamaha at the wrong time, struggled in 2005, 2006, he showed some flashes of what he could do. And then obviously in Estoril, as David said, he was able to take advantage of the uh, the special tires and he was able to just have the race of his life. Yeah. And, and uh, that year you had Elias and Pedrosa winning 
uh, both winning races. Um, and it, it felt like, uh, we were in the jockey stage of, uh, OGP that, you know, to win, you had to be tiny, uh, to be a successful rider. And everyone was thinking, oh, right. No, these riders are never going to be uh, a, a normal sized person will never w- win a race again. And to me, it's always interesting to see how that develops. So you have, uh, someone like Danny Pedrosa, who was, exceptional truly exceptional you know exceptionally talented and really really fast um uh, and successful on a MotoGP bike you had Tony Elias who'd come in and was fast and was uh, you know capable of winning races um and so everyone was then looking for tiny riders who could be really really quick um but it's funny to see that, that sort of turned around uh, uh, again now and now we're looking for riders who are maybe 10 15 centimeters uh, uh, taller than um, uh, than Pedrosa and um, uh, than Pedrosa and Alias had been, because it seems that you do need to have the longer limbs to be able to muscle the bike around more. Yeah, that certainly seemed to be the case when we were uh, in the 990cc era. The bikes uh, were a bit more uh, unruly than uh, today's machines, um, but uh, well, that really set the stage perfectly for uh, Valencia, the final race of the season. It was the first showdown that we had had in MotoGP. Uh, history since 1992, uh, whenever uh, Du and, and Rainey faced off in South Africa at the end of that year for the title final round. Hayden trailed Rossi by eight points coming in to uh, Valencia, and we didn't know it at the time, but uh, Nicky actually wasn't uh, completely unscathed from that Pedroza crash. He came to Valencia carrying a bit of an injury, and that would uh, be a little bit of a hindrance for him over the weekend. Wow. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. We've been waiting two weeks for this day, for this moment, this hour. 30 laps, just over four kilometers the circuit, just under two and a half miles. Look at that front row. Troy Bayliss, Loris Caparossi, and the champion and the championship leader, Valentino Rossi. Second row, Shinya Nakano, Danny Pedrosa in the middle. The championship contender, Nicky Hayden, who led the way for so, so long. The uh, comforting and dulcet tones of uh, Nick Harris there, setting the scene for what was uh, an epic final weekend of the 2006 season. A fitting finale for a year that had drama pretty much every turn of uh, of the year. And uh, the race wasn't exactly a classic, but uh, it had all the drama and everything we would have wanted it to be in there. Uh, Nicky Hayden obviously trailed Valentino Rossi by eight points with just one race to play. He had to really beat Rossi yeah, to win the race and hope that Rossi had a bit of a nightmare, finished off the podium. And, uh, well, he was, uh, wasn't quite fully fighting fit after that Estoril crash. He still was uh, burying the scars and uh, wasn't quite on top form, but he didn't tell anyone that during the weekend, did he? No, I mean, he kept, obviously, uh, I mean, I remember his leathers, he, he has special leathers made um, uh, then with uh, uh, a pile of poker chips and all in because it was obvious to him that, that you know, this was his one chance at winning the championship and he was going to do whatever it take, uh, whatever it took. And that it, that included not telling anyone about uh, uh, about anything. But certainly everyone else, we were all, uh, you know, expecting this to be, you know, a coronation of Valentino Rossi again. No one was expecting Nicky Hayden to actually walk away uh, uh, and win this just because, you know, all Rossi had to do was basically finish third uh, uh, and he would, uh, he, he'd, take the championship so uh, um uh, i think even rossi thought that it was going to be relatively uh, uh, relatively easy for him and perhaps that 
became his undoing. Yeah, we also had uh, the news that Danny Pedrosa um, he came out and said that he would basically uh, do whatever he could to ensure that uh, Nicky Hayden would have a successful win and possibly win the championship. Pedrosa obviously uh, operating under a total cloud after the uh, the Estoril affair. Hadn't exactly been a good PR for him and uh, and his side of the Repsol Honda garage. And then there was also a bit of a wild card in uh, a certain Australian who was uh, replacing the injured Sete Gibernoi. Gibernoi crashed the very start of the Portuguese Grand Prix, coming together with uh, Casey Stoner. He uh, rebroke, rebent. I think the there was a plate that he had in uh, the collarbone that was broken in Catalonia. And uh, basically, Gibernoi was out of uh, what was supposed to be his farewell MotoGP ride at the end of 2006. And Troy Bayliss, who had just sewn up the World Superbike Championship, Steve, was stepping in to ride for Ducati alongside Caparossi. Yeah, and for Bayless, this was the one opportunity he was going to have to really set the scene for what he wanted in a MotoGP team. He was able to bring his World Superbike winning crew chief, Ernesto Marinelli, across with them. They were able to keep the same team together. Tardazzi was there, Paolo Chiabatti was there with him, and it really was a case of, right, Troy, this is everything you've ever wanted from Ducati and MotoGP. It's your prize for winning the World Superbike Championship. Just go out and have fun. And uh, the only way that Bayless ever knew to have fun was by just uh, dominating and uh, shoving everyone's noses in it and uh, he went out and he was able to win this race it was the culmination of everything coming together for him and obviously for Bayless he had plenty of MotoGP experience at this stage he had raced for three years in the Premier Class for Ducati and also for the Honda Pons team and now suddenly he was getting the chance to have that last 990 Grand Prix and uh, have it on uh, pretty much the perfect package for him good tyres as well from Bridgestone came at the perfect time obviously with uh, Hayden and Rossi being the focus of attention that weekend he was able to fly under the radar a little bit yeah there was absolutely no no pressure on him whatsoever you know he he had come he was straight off the back of uh, of winning the uh, uh, the world superbike championship um uh, he was on a bike that uh, um or he was in a situation where he had everyone around him so yeah like you say it, absolutely no pressure for him and um uh, the ideal situation in which to uh, uh, you know get a shot at at trying to win a race yeah and Troy said that uh, before the race he had a conversation with Lars Caparossi and Caparossi had told him, Troy, you are going to love this Bridgestone front tyre and the amount of grip that it has. And well, so it proved Bayliss. Well, the scene was set perfectly, really, on uh, Saturday. Rossi qualified on pole ahead of Bayliss and Caparossi. Hayden could only manage fifth. But, um, well, Sunday in morning warm-up, we just had the, uh, the slight impression that, um, well, it was Valentino Rossi now leading the championship for the first time this year. Um, basically, the first time that he had had to go into the final race of the year to decide the championship. And, um, well, maybe there was a, a few hints that he was actually the one that was starting to feel a bit of pressure, as opposed to Nicky Hayden. The, the, basically, the shoe was now on the other foot. Yeah, I mean, you saw that uh, in the start. He got a, he got a very mediocre start in the, the first couple of laps and soon found himself, uh, um, you know, much further down the field than he really needed to be. And at that point, that was where Danny Pedrosa really could try to help Nicky Hayden because he was uh, briefly ahead of Rossi. I mean, it only lasted two corners, but at least he put in um, put up a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of resistance. Um, but yeah, it, it just seemed from the very right from the very start that uh, Rossi was not. Um, he was not completely himself. He was uh, clearly struggling. Yeah, and then that moment when Rossi did crash out, Steve, I mean, 
like you couldn't really have scripted that, could you? Absolutely not. I mean, the one thing about Valentino Rossi is that he doesn't make big mistakes. Um, but when he washed out his, uh, you know, when he washed out the front, the, the, the front tire, I think everyone was breathless. No one could believe that this had, that this had happened. Um, uh, he, he damaged his bike in the event he had to get back on. Um, but he never really looked like, uh, he would be able to get sort of, you know, close enough to, 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 to salvage this. And it was, it was, genuinely rider error so clearly the pressure did get to him yeah so rossi crashed night at turn two on lap five and uh with it i think the hundred and thirty thousand fans that had turned up to see coronation of rossi win his sixth moto gp title in valencia were left aghast and uh well i wasn't at the circuit that day but all accounts uh, suggest that uh, the fans started basically leaving the track as soon as Rossi went down and it became clear that there was going to be no chance of him lifting that crown because, uh, well, at that stage, Bielis was out in front, Caparossi riding ably behind him in second and then Hayden knowing that all he needed was third place to lift the crown and, uh, well, he duly did that. And uh, Well, it was a pretty emotional uh, slowdown lap. I remember Hayden obviously taking off his helmet. There was the tears, there was the Stars and Stripes flag. And then there was the uh, good sportsmanship we saw with uh, Rossi congratulating them and coming out with some really nice words afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is, you, the, the, I mean, for me, one of the most memorable things was seeing the, uh, uh, because uh, after Valencia, they always have the big fireworks display and they always have lots and lots of, uh, uh, lots and lots of smoke bombs. And there was all of this yellow smoke wafting across there, uh, giving, um, uh, uh, giving a clue as to who uh, the circuit had expected to, uh, uh, to carry the championship. Um, uh, but at the time there was um, uh, Nicky Hayden, out there with his family. I mean, it was genuinely one of the most emotional uh, moments I think um, I've uh, I've seen in 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 MotoGP history. It was um, it was deserved, and also at Valencia, Hayden on the nine ninety uh, around turn the uh, around was it turn thirteen the, uh, the the long left hander. He was just spectacular around there. The, the, the way that he slid the bike uh, up uh, over the hill and round the uh, around that long uh, that long left, it was all such a, a a joy to watch. Yeah, I remember having the good fortune to uh, interview Nicky back in two thousand and fifteen when he was just about to depart uh, the MotoGP paddock, and he said that uh, when he thinks back in to those yellow fireworks that were let off after the race, that still gave him a little smile. And um, Steve. How do you how do you remember that finale? I mean, uh, you obviously got to know Nicky quite well uh, towards the end of his career. Um, that was that was definitely his peak, right? That was uh, the pinnacle, uh, the crowning achievement of uh, what had been a, a really superb, stellar career. Yeah, and for Nicky, it was always more important, really, for what it meant for his family and for Earl, his dad, and for all the people that had helped him. I think that was what even. In 2006 at Valencia, in the press conference afterwards, he talked a lot about that. It was all about the people that had made it possible for him to live out that dream. And that was the big thing for him. And that's what meant a lot to him even more 
after Valencia in 06 as his career progressed. I think for, for me, I was sitting at home and I was just a fan and I always loved American riders for whatever reason. Probably comes from whenever you first start watching racing and there's all the, the dirt trackers that were still coming through at that stage. And uh, it always sort of led where you were drawn towards those riders with that style. And it was interesting how people changed their perception of someone like Nicky through the course of the year, where it went from being where he was the throwback rider with the old school riding style to suddenly he was just a consistent points order. It wasn't about winning races, it was about scoring points. And that was always something that irked Nicky a little bit at times because you know he he was a rider that wanted to win races but the goal was always to win your championships and uh, you know we've seen other riders that took the opposite approach Casey Stoner always famously said you know I'm here to win races and championships will take care of themselves but uh, sometimes you have to just take it where finishing in the points finishing in the podiums that's what wins you the, the championship and that was really the case for 2006 for for Nicky's championship season yeah no, I saw there was a lot of uh, well reading through internet forums at the time there was a, a kind of popular opinion that uh, you know Nicky only won two races I mean maybe this was a uh, luck more than anything but uh, I think having witnessed the whole season this was this was definitely a, a deserved honor for him right yeah and I think that for for me uh, whenever you know I was a kid there was always the AMA championship was always on the telly in the UK you had it on I think it was Motors TV or something like that and uh, you were able to watch the watch the recordings from those races. So you were aware of who Nicky was from quite an early stage in his career because it was already being televised in, in the UK and Ireland. And you were able to see this rider in in the superbike class in, in America win a ton of races. I think he won nine or 10 races in his championship winning season in 2002. And he had raced as a wild card in world superbikes. And, you know, people knew who he was before he came to Grand Prix. But I think it's easy to forget just how big of a jump it is from any championship to go to race in MotoGP. We've seen World Superbike Champions struggle. We've seen British Superbike Champions struggle. We've seen 250 and 125 Grand Prix winners and championship winners struggle to make the move into the Grand Prix class. And, you know, it takes time to get the most from those bikes. It takes a lot of luck to win a championship. And, you know, I think it's easy to forget that all of those riders have that level of talent. And it's just a case of for uh, everything coming together to win a championship and to win races to be able to put it together. David, would you be of the similar opinion? That was uh, definitely a deserved hidden triumph in 2006. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's very simple. The rider with the most points at the end of the season is the champion. And um, Hayden was incredibly consistent. Um, you can't say that he was, that he got, uh, he had particular luck anywhere. Uh, he was battling all sorts of uh, uh, all sorts of difficulties. He was spending his time as a test rider, as a test mule, doing trying to figure out the uh, the, the parts ready for the 2007 bike um, because he had a rookie teammate, um, uh, Valentino Rossi. I mean, you know, if you have to say in 2006 who was the uh, better racer, there's no question. Valentino Rossi was at the peak of his powers. He was absolutely the best motorcycle racer in the world at the time. But um, uh, Valentino Rossi... Um, that didn't focus during testing in two, in two, in the winter of 2005, 2006. And so, you know, it's, it's, 
he was supposed to be developing the bike and he developed a bike which ended up with loads of chatter um uh, he lo he lost his focus he made these mistakes um uh, he crashed out at turn at uh, turn 2 in uh, valencia um uh, he crashed he made the mistake that to, that caused him to crash in in Assen and uh, caused him to injure himself so there uh, it, it was um I, I think this was the and i think Rossi said afterwards this was the year in which he which shook him out of his uh, out of his complacency where he realized yeah no you really have to work to actually win a championship you really have to do uh, do uh, do something about it the, these things don't come of their own accord Okay, so, so lads, if we were to choose uh, one image or one memory from uh, that memorable season, uh, what, what do you think it would be, Steve? I'll start with you. Uh, well, for me, it's probably whenever the water arrived at Laguna Seca and everyone was able to get a drink. <laughs> that was probably the best moment of my life, to be honest. From a racing perspective, it was obviously just uh, to see Nicky win the championship. It was something special and... Uh, I think for everyone that was watching as a fan, unless you were a diehard Rossi fan, everyone loves an underdog. Everyone loves to see something a little bit outside the outside the box. And this was definitely it. I thought that uh, obviously the impact of this year was really pronounced because you had suddenly the rookies that came through that would become the aliens. And then, uh, as David said earlier, just Rossi learning that titles weren't automatic and they certainly weren't going to be automatic in the future for him. Dave, if you had to pick one moment or one image from the year that uh, still stands out in your memory, yeah, I mean, obviously the um, uh, Nicky Hayden with tears streaming down his face at Valencia is uh, is an iconic image. It's, it's what what a champion is supposed to feel when they win a championship. But I think also that image of uh, um, Marco Melandri, the one-handed power slide through the uh, through the final corner at Phillip Island. That is, it almost sums up motorcycle racing, that sense of sort of um, excitement, elation, looseness, um, just the free spiritedness of uh, of the whole thing. Uh, it's it, it, that to me summed up a lot of the era as well. I think. Yeah, I think uh, there's two pretty much uh, images that uh, well stand out with me as well for sure. The ones that you've just mentioned. So I think that uh, that leaves us uh, at the end of our discussion about the 2006 season, uh, dear listener. Um, I'd like to thank uh, my two guests on the show today, Mr. David Emmett of Motor Matters and Mr. Stephen English of uh, World Superbike Infamy. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> thank you, Neil. Thanks, Neil. Yep, and uh, thank you as well, listener, for uh, taking this trip and holding our hand as we walked on memory lane and relived uh, some of the best moments from uh, one of the best uh, championships in uh, recent memory, I guess. Now, we're going to be doing a few more of these episodes in the weeks to come, and uh, if there is a particular season that you would like us to focus on and discuss, uh, well, leave us a message. You can uh, do so basically uh, with any of us uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Neil Morrison eighty seven. You can find David. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Moto Matters. And Steve. Uh, at uh, Steve English GP. Okay. So, yep. If there's anything you would like us to focus on in particular going forward, let us know, and uh, also give us uh, some feedback on uh, on what you thought of uh, today's episode. It's probably a good time to remind you that we've got several different channels on social media that you should be following. Uh, that's on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And do uh, follow us 
and maybe even contribute uh, to us on Patreon. We have a Patreon page as well. That's patreon.com forward slash Panic Pass podcast. You can become a subscriber for some exclusive content for as little as $3 a month. So I hope everyone listening is well, safe and healthy in these uh, trying times. And uh, we'll hopefully be back again very soon with another edition of the Panic Pass podcast. Until then, goodbye. Well done, lads. That was a good show.